You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Thanks for joining AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. Today's special guest is Nancy Slonim Arane, founder of the Chillmark Writing Workshop on Martha's Vineyard. She's a regular contributor to National Public Radio's All Things Considered and is a columnist for multiple newspapers. Her book, Memoirized Medicine, The Healing Power of Writing, Your Messy, Imperfect, Unruly, But Gorgeously Yours, Life Story, tells both her own story and helps guide readers on a journey of self-discovery. Welcome, Nancy, to the podcast today. Thank you. Start by telling us your, your story and what got you interested in writing a memoir. Well, tell us your story. Do you have like a month? <laughs> you know, I, I, I started writing this memoir many years ago because I, my husband and I had a son who got diabetes at nine months old. He was the youngest diabetic in medical history at the time. And then at 22, he got MS. Hmm. I need tissues right now. And we knew that how we did his next 16 years before he left the planet was unusual. The way we did the journey was both harrowing and filled with sorrow and brokenheartedness and also incredible beauty. And, and somewhere down the line, we knew that people really, I, I wanted a book. I wanted to read something where somebody gave me a, a map, a guide. So I kept saying, you know, for an example, when he couldn't, when he couldn't uh, go to the bathroom anymore, we had a, a wheelchair that was for showering. And all three of us were nude, and my husband sawzalled the bathtub, and we rolled this wheelchair into the bathtub, and we ran the water, and I got on my hands and knees, and I actually stuck my finger up his butt. And my husband, the stand-up comic, said, I know you're up there. I know <laughs> you're up there. And it got Dan laughing, and the duty came down. And on the way home, 20 minutes away, we live 20 minutes away from him. We sat in the car, we're driving and we're saying, did that, did that just happen? And were we laughing? This is unbelievable. It was also gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. So crying and laughing at the same time is something I've always been very good at. First I'm crying, then I'm laughing, then I'm crying again. And I think a lot of people, because I teach this workshop, when they start crying, they apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. And it's like, culturally, we are so terrified of sorrow. You got a pain, we got a pill for you. So mm-hmm. I, I started writing the memoir a long time ago. And during his illness, 16 years, he was really, really sick and got worse and worse. I had a friend who said to me, your pain is so great. Dan doesn't have room for his own. Can you imagine? I'm a mom. 
So I said, so what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, when you're with him, pretend you never met him. It was the most brilliant suggestion because it worked. I didn't do it all the time. Obviously, it couldn't work all the time. But I would drive from my house to his house 20 minutes. And in the car, I would invent these little scenarios. Oh, I met this kid on the train. He was so beautiful. He's really sick and his mother can't handle it. His parents don't know what to do. I'm going to be like an auntie. And by the time I'd get down to his house, I'd walk in and go, dude. And we'd end up having a phenomenal time. On the days where I was the mother of a sick person, I walked in as a brokenhearted mom and he was only too happy to be the victim. And that was the dance that we did over many, many years. And I understood roles and how a role can stick you and and keep you from any kind of mobility and any kind of freedom. And so I worked really hard at not having the role of mother of a sick child. And sometimes it worked brilliantly. And when it did, it was so gorgeous. I also had read Carolyn Mace's Sacred Contracts. And in it, I don't know, do you know who she is? Did you ever read any of no. her stuff? Help us, help us understand that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, one of the scenes, and it was interesting because I was reading the chapter Sacred Contracts in, in Anatomy of the Spirit was the name of the book. And her name is Carolyn Mace, M-Y-S-S. And she's a big spiritual teacher. And I was reading that chapter when I got the call from Denver that Dan had had, they thought he had a stroke. And then they called back and said, no, it's MS. That chapter absolutely enlightened our entire relationship because he had been a difficult kid right from the beginning. From nine months old, when he got diabetes, he screamed and then he was angry. We did everything wrong that you could do with a chronically ill child. Now, that's the book I should write because I know exactly what you should do. If you've got a kid that's got a a chronically ill disease, you treat them regularly. You don't make new rules. You don't say, oh, he's never going to be. So we'll give you four outs in baseball instead of three outs because you're sick and you're never. Well, the message we gave him was you're broken and it's really too bad. And the world is going to bow down to you because you're broken. And how can we fix this? And how can we make you happy? And he used it, manipulated it and became a very angry kid. And we, you know, kids don't want that kind of power. Nobody wants power that they didn't earn. So anyway, in Carolyn Mace's chapter, Sacred Contracts, she said, imagine you're up in your cloud with your angel. And obviously this is about living and uh, feeling that you live many lifetimes. So if you don't have that assumption, then, and I'm married to a scientist, this is not his trip, but it's mine. So you're living in your cloud with your angel. And the, and the angel says, so Nance, what do you want to learn in your next lifetime? And I said, I have been a control freak for so many lifetimes. I am sick of it. And she goes, okay, got it. Dan, what do you want to learn in your next lifetime? And Dan said, I have been a victim lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. I don't want to be a victim anymore. And our angel goes, ooh, have I got a lifetime for you guys. One of you is going to be the mother. The other one's going to be the kid. The kid's going to get a disease. And guess what, mom? You won't get that first disease. It'll be too hard for you. So he's going to go ahead and get a second disease. And that's where your wisdom will finally evolve. So I tell you, the kid's going to have a harder time. Neither of you are going to have an easy time. But mom going to be tough, but the kid tougher. Who wants to be what? Dan said, I'll be the kid. I said, i be the mom. And then our angel kicks us out of the cloud. And as we're tumbling to earth, she goes, oh, and you're not going to remember any of this. Mm. Well, 
Of course, I never remembered it. But when I read that, I started sobbing. It just felt familiar. It just felt right. It just felt resonant with everything about our relationship. And so I started operating on that assumption that maybe this is the work that we came here to do, that we made this sacred contract, that he and I would be teachers for each other, that we would come into a lifetime where we were going to just have to have it tough. We would forget that that's what it was about. But basically, it was about being teachers for our evolution, for our spiritual evolution. And honestly, that is what happened. So writing that memoir was a a way of my saying to other people, I know you're going to have a tough time and you're in the middle of a tough time, but it's not for naught. It's not random. You have not been chosen as victim. You are doing spiritual work and it's very hard. Ram Dass, who's my teacher, once went to his disembodied friend, Emmanuel, and he said, Emmanuel, I'm trying to meditate every day. I'm trying to eat with, with grace. I'm trying to be kinder to people. I'm trying to listen better. Why does shit still happen to me? And Emmanuel said, Ramdas, you're at the University of Life. Take the curriculum. So that has been a guiding principle for me because no matter what happens, I know it's a teaching. If I'm pissed at somebody, I know they're a teacher for me. If something happens physically to me, I know it's a teaching. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it doesn't make it like, how does this happen to me? Why me? In fact, Dan, for years, used to scream, why me? Why me? Why me? Victim, victim, victim. And I'm the mother. How am I, Do I have an answer for why me? I mean, how in the world? How in the world could I have an answer for that? My heart was breaking. And then he started to surrender. And people would visit him. And he started to realize that he actually was teaching people. He was, my husband called him the perspective guru. And people would go there and they'd leave. And they were, you're going to complain about your arthritis? You're going to complain because your car broke down? This kid is in bed. He's, he's, he's got everything wrong with him. And he was the perspective guru. So he started to surrender. He started to become more and more beautiful. He started to be funnier. He always was funny. He started to live with great ease. And I walked into his room at one point, a couple of years before he died. And I said, okay, I got one for you. Can't walk. You can't do your shot because your hands tremor. Now you have two bed sores that are not going to heal. Your girlfriend just broke up with you. You have swallowing issues now. Dan, I just want to know why you. And he looked at me and his timing was always great. And he said, why not me? I said, you've gurued. I made it a verb. I said, I'm calling dad. And I called my husband and I said, he did it. He just, he just, he just arced into wisdom. Why not me? And actually it's, it's a great thing for all of us to think in terms of why not me? What, you're somebody special? You're not supposed to have tragedy? What, you're the chosen one? You're not supposed to have a broken leg and your mother's not supposed to die? So if we have the why not me and the university of life and take the curriculum, they're just great. It's the balance we're looking for, the balance of feeling the broken heart, being able to say I am hurting and also having the larger picture of it's all perfect. So Ram Dass basically has been my teacher throughout all of that stuff. Nancy, that's, that's it's so the just thinking through like changing your role, changing your perspective and changing over time. How did 
you know, that's an, just such a powerful story and, you know, helps us think through why tragedies happen. How, how did the writing, how does writing it help that healing process? What was it about the writing that allowed that to happen? I believe that, I mean, for my own self, until I speak, I don't know what I think. And until I write, I don't know what mm. insights I got while I was thinking. So the insights come with the writing. So you write the story, you get it out of your body. I am a very big believer that all of those sorrows are marinating in your liver and in your kidneys and in your heart. And when you get them out of your body onto the page, the healing begins. Physiologically, the healing begins. Mentally, yes, too. And when you write and you also read or tell the story and somebody receives it, I mean, that's what narrative medicine's all about then it's not only yours anymore. You don't have to carry this weight. You still have the experience, but it's not your identity. It's, it's one thing that happened to you or 18 things that happened to you, but they're not who you are. They're things that happened. They shaped you, but it's not all you are. So writing is a great way. And I tell my students, read out loud, read your stuff out loud so you can hear Actually, you listen from a different part of your brain so you can hear what you're feeling because lots of times you're numb about the feeling. But if you read, a lot of times in the class, people will read their stuff and they start crying and they go, I didn't even think when I was writing this that I was that moved. And they're very shocked that they're crying. And I'm clapping, of course, that they're crying. Because you're releasing that emotion and yeah. feeling something which is really important. You know, yeah. I, I listened to your audiobook, so I, I'm going to say I read it and I also got your audiobook. But and it, it wasn't it was narrated by by someone else. But how did how did you think it was narrated relative to how you would have narrated? Do you well, think that you know, the person I, reading the story makes it? I, I only listened to five minutes. She was very good, but I couldn't I couldn't bear it because I wanted to do it. So <laughs> they didn't ask me to do it. They just wrote. You know, the publisher wrote to me and said, "We got we're gonna we we just were asked to do the recording." And I went, "Yay!" And they said, "No, not you." <laughs> it's like oh, because you so, would have read it differently, right? Because it would have been a different story maybe well so i know that i mean obviously it would have been different because it's mine but i think she did i listened to you know i probably listened to about 10 minutes and she did a good job it was i didn't <laughs> wince let's put it that way no wincing well and how do, how do you because you have to be so vulnerable when you're writing right because you, yeah. you mentioned yeah. also that you know the audience is is you and the audience is also about your feelings and trying to be authentic how do how do you do that because I think we're always telling stories to ourselves in our head about like how people are thinking about the, or the story we're telling and, and there's judgment there, right? So how, how do you do that in an authentic way? And, and You know, I think when you're in a writing environment that's safe and people are responding to your vulnerability and you find out that vulnerability is actually strength and that people are blown away by your truth, it's, it gets easier and easier. But most people lived with criticism and judgment. They First, they were you know in school and they got graded. And then they had an uncle or a mother or a sibling who said, you're an idiot. And that poetry's stupid. And I don't want to hear that kind of you know anger. And I don't want to hear your tears and, and don't come out of your room until you're happy again. A lot of messages that most people get are that we're not really interested in your broken heart and yet everybody has one mm -hmm. so i you know i just think get yourself into an environment that's safe even if it's just a partner 
and uh, read and the person is going to go, holy moly, that happened to you? Oh my God, I want to hug you. That's what happens. And, and also, it's not really about who's reading it anyway, right? Because this is about a healing process of writing and, and discovering. Yeah, yeah. Does it make it something different than, you know, because I've we've talked about gratitude journals before where people talk about what they're grateful for just to help them get that feeling or, or legacy projects where you're writing about your legacy. I think this, this feels very different than those types of things, right? Yeah, because this is where you're an asshole. This isn't, this isn't <laughs> where you're great. The best writing to me is I, I don't want to know how perfect you are. It's wonderful that you have gratitude. I'm proud of that. I, I, I think everybody should, you know, walk around in awe. But I also know that everybody is walking around with abuse. Everybody is walking around with sadness. And to, to, to invite me into your heart and tell me what happened to you specifically, then I become you. I have, then it, it lights up my, my compassion. It invites me in and all of a sudden I know that we are the same person. We just have different details. And that's why, you know, we would, I'm so frustrated about the world because I know we would never kill each other if we just knew each other's stories because we're the same. We've all been hurt. We've all felt shame. We've all wished we could be something else. We've all wanted more. We've all been embarrassed. As soon as you know that you share all of those qualities with somebody else, are you really going to be angry at them or are you going to feel like we're so connected? And that's, you know, that's why I always feel like it's like Peace Corps is great, but I'd love to have a writing from the heart all over the world. And just, in fact, politically, when things, you know, they're so divided now, I just feel like we could go into different, different towns and do this workshop with people that don't share the same political views and just don't do anything political, but write the stories. My prompts are great. They're, they're you know, they're personal narratives. And then you're sitting with somebody who (laughs) voted the way you thought they shouldn't vote. And all of a sudden you're hugging them and all that other stuff goes away. Well, it's almost, it almost feels like it's, it's opposite to social media, right? Because in social media, we have to put up a, you know, sort of everyone's, I look at my vacation, everything's going great. Look like for dinner. And, and this is sort of like the opposite of that. Like, look at, look at the suffering we're all dealing with, you know, and try to find that common humanity about it. Yeah. Look at me, look at me as a loser. Look at how I told, look at the mistake I made and, and how I'm paying for it now. And I'm working toward not doing that again. And then somebody else is going to say, oh, I did the same thing. And here's what I did. I started walking in the woods. It really, really helped. I needed solitude. Maybe you need to be alone a little. I mean, that kind of communication is what we're missing. Have you done workshops where people actually talk about cancer? Because cancer feels to me like one of those things where it's that moment and, you know, there's a narrative there. And that narrative sometimes is sort of like everyone's got to put on their best face, but there's so many things behind it. <laughs> like well, you know, this last, so this last workshop at Kripalu a week ago had five people, you know, we go around the room and say your name and why you're taking the workshop. Five of them had cancer and the sixth person is terminal. And she was, she, I, she went from pale, white skin, braille, could barely read to so alive because she shared all of her story and people just bowed to her. It was gorgeous. Yeah. And so do you think it's sort of, it's the sort of self-awareness that you get from the writing and then the taking of the different perspectives and roles and then sharing it, right? So, it's just, so those are the components of it, right? Actually putting it down, 
reflecting yep. and then sharing. And there has to be a sharing component, it feels like, too. Uh, well, you know, they've proven they've proven in this thing called narrative medicine, which is now a major at Columbia University, that when you share your story, you fe- you heal faster. I took a workshop when I was teaching the narrative medicine as one of the many teachers. I took one of the workshops and this guy had about 30 of us in a circle and we broke into twos and you have to tell your partner your story in a couple of minutes, and then he rings a bell, and then she tells you her story. So I told my whole story about Dan, and I'm crying, da 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 Then when the bell rings after everyone has told their partner's story, you go around and you tell your partner's story as if it were you. Mm. So you don't say, oh, I heard this thing, and my partner said, it's like, I, and you tell that story. When you tell somebody else's tragedy as if it were yours, you feel enormous compassion for them. It's a great, and he does it with Irish and English kids. He does it with Israeli and Palestinian kids. He does it all over the world. It's mainly about really the connection of realizing that we're no, we're not separate, that we're the same. And and is it also about not being too linear about it? Because I think a lot of your prompts are about just like, you know, you can approach it in from different ways. I like think about a special phone call, think about like different moments and take different perspectives on the same thing. And it, it could, you know, if if some if it's hard initially to get anything down, maybe it's just about talking about something else and to get your creative juices going to sort of understanding and examine yourself. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I, I was born here. Like, no, <laughs> this happened not. when I was ten. This happened when I was twenty. It doesn't have to be like that, right? No, linear is not creative. Linear actually keeps you locked. It's much better to you start anywhere. I mean, the prompts just they're jumping off places. And then you just go where you go. And I love also, you, you mentioned something about second waffle. And I was actually thinking culturally, like, you know, you're supposed to pour tea. And then the first the first pour is supposed to be, you don't, you throw it out in the second when yep. you drink. So you said, I think the term you used was second waffle. So tell, tell because like sometimes we want to get it out, but, you know, it's okay to throw out stories too. Well, I <laughs> think okay. what Irma Bombeck said that kids are like waffles. You should, you should get to throw the first one out. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, she did say that. But I don't think you should throw anything out because it's your process. So you start out and, and, and maybe, I mean, some people, the very first draft is like perfect because they don't have time. When I, when I give the assignment right in class, they have to write right then. And it's amazing how many really powerful, beautiful pieces are written immediately. There's no time to second guess. There's no time to say, oh, they're going to think I'm weird. Oh, I better not write that. Oh, I got to change that word. Just allowing themselves to get out of their own. I always say you're a conduit. Just get out of your way and let the stuff come through. And it does. And, and again, I can't emphasize enough. It's all about safety. If you're safe and you don't feel judged and evaluated, then I think you can paint. I think, I mean, you can't run a marathon if you're safe. That's different. That's physical. But anything creative, if you aren't feeling judged or worried about what people are going to think of you, I think you could pretty much do any art form. Well, that goes to sort of, you, you talk about grief and I, I was, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a memoir. You've inspired me. I'm going to do it. And you have a section on grief and it, it struck me that you, you said write a poem about grief and I'm a terrible, I can't, I mean, I can't, I could rhyme. That's about it. But my rhymes are terrible. So what is it about different artistic expressions of writing? Like is something is distor- describing grief in a poem forms, is there something special about that emotion 
with poetry? Well, I think some people do poetry really well. I'm not into poetry. I'm a I'm a Moon June gal myself. I loved Ogden Nash. So my thing is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think, you know, you just said I'm a terrible poet and and I want to say to you, what do you know? <laughs> Maybe you'll come. Where do you live? We're in California, correct? Oh, well, I, I come to Esalen once a year, so maybe you'll take it and write and start your <laughs> and, and I'll let you hear my poetry. But I guess, you know, it was just interesting to me because it was like, how do we think about motions? Like you've talked a lot about roles and perspectives, but maybe it's also about taking an artistic way to describe an emotion some t- somehow. I don't think process, I don't or? think you have to think artistic. It'll come out artistic when it's authentic. I see. I, I, I think it's best to not worry about how is this going to sound, and this isn't as good as Mary Oliver. And certainly, I'm certainly not Shakespeare, so why bother? I think you should sound like you, Ray. Or if if it's like I have this grief and I want to draw it, like why not draw it instead? Or Perfect. you know, it's, it doesn't matter, right? So I, no. it's not like there's a specific motion that works with a specific form. It's no, just let it come out and be authentic. I think is that yeah. sort of yeah. what you're yeah. what you're saying. You know, just be willing to get out of your head. This is not a good art form. This brain, this brain tells you what time your dentist appointment is, and it might remember what you were wearing when your father died. But how you felt when your father died is right here, heart and gut, your stomach and your heart, but not your brain. So it's about unlocking it. And and so writing unlocks it. Tell me about, you mentioned earlier on, and we this theme keeps on coming up, and I'm trying to put words to describe it. But I think, again, I think a lot of us feel like we can't feel more than one thing at the same time. You, you talked about crying and laughing and, and how you celebrate that. And it seems to me that happens more often when you're truly releasing the, the emotions. It, it, you can have more than one at the same time, or they can switch I think, very quickly. And I think, you know, I hate the phrase bipolar because it really bothers me that we don't honor the fact that we do have a huge range of feelings and that I always, I mean, of course, I'm not a doctor. But I feel like so many kids, when they were feeling whatever they were feeling, were told not to feel that. And so they had to kind of contain it. And I feel like it's a balloon that's ready to pop as opposed to, you know, if the kid is angry, let them be angry as long as they're not, you know, physically hurting themselves and you. And if they're laughing so hard that they're on the floor rolling around, how about just loving the fact that you got a kid that's laughing that hard. And if all of those emotions were allowed, I don't know how many people would be bipolar. I just feel like people were were made to contain their feelings because it bothered the adults because they were uncomfortable. Well, Nancy, I know these these 30 minutes always go by so quickly and you know what I'm learning and I will write a memoir, you've inspired me to do it, is the power of writing and narrative medicine, power of, you know, being authentic and, you know, showing emotion in your in your work to help you heal. And, and just how, sounding right, just sounding yeah. like you. Don't try to sound like somebody else. Don't uh-huh. try to sound like a writer. Use your language, your rhythms, your story. Your truth. And take different perspectives on it too, right? Because I think that comes out too, where 
try different roles. Don't be afraid. You mentioned leave your comfort zone and take different perspectives and, and that'll help the healing process. Yeah? Yeah. What else can, you know, in our closing moments, what else can we tell our listeners? I would say take a chance of telling the truth. Get somebody safe, be around safe people so that you can say, this is who I am. This is what happened to me. Something happened to everybody. Many things. I call them tiny murders. Every kid had a lot of bad stuff. Get it out of your body. And then healing will, process will start. Yep. That's well, Nancy, thank you for inspiring me to start my journey. Hopefully, many of our listeners here to start their journey. And, you know, I, I can't wait to put something down on paper. <laughs> I can't wait till you do. Are you going to send it to me? Only if you, <laughs> if you want to hear it. Listen, I'm hyperbolic in my praise. So I do want to hear. And I will tell you that I'm, I already know you're brilliant because your interview is brilliant. Your questions were brilliant. You're a great listener. And if you're a great listener, that means you're probably a great writer. Well, thank you for helping hopefully inspire people to be authentic. And, you know, again, in today's world, there's a lot of pressures not to be. And so yeah. um, I'm hoping that we can inspire people to do that. And, and um, you know, I have to, I have to, I'll take the first step. <laughs> take the first step. For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma. 